0: Hello and welcome to Stories of the Second World War. Today I'm joined by distinguished British historian and Second World War author Guy Walters. Guy has written a plethora of books pertaining to events that took place during the Nazi period in World War II, which include Berlin Games, How the Nazis Stole the Olympic Dream, The Real Great Escape, and Hunting Evil, the Nazi war criminals who escaped in the quest to bring them to justice. Guy, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: It's a real pleasure to be here. And, and I have to say, I've never been called distinguished before. I'll, I'll take that.
0: Well, it's certainly an honor to have you on our show today. Now, our topic of conversation today is something that has fascinated me for many years, and that is the final days of Hitler's Third Reich. We will also be discussing those Nazi war criminals who escaped Germany following those final days, as presented in your book, Hunting Evil. Whether Germany had any hope of winning World War II is certainly a widely debated subject. But what I'm curious to find out is at what point did the German people know that Berlin was going to fall and fall into the hands of the Soviets at that?
1: Well, I would have thought the German people knew uh as soon as D-Day had happened that the war was only going to go in one way. Uh So I'm sure that in Berlin and all throughout uh, the Third Reich and Germany – that anybody privately would have acknowledged that you just can't win a war on two fronts. But as the Russians drew nearer uh, throughout '45, early '45, again, even though they couldn't publicly express their uh, doubts about the inevitability of collapse, um, I'm sure that 99% of people who lived in Berlin had a very good idea that they were going to be overrun by the Red Army.
0: In the final days of the Third Reich, what was going on in the minds of the German people? And uh, interestingly, in the minds of those in Hitler's sort of inner circle as well.
1: Oh, there was no doubt um, if we just addressed uh, the, the people, first of all, they knew that the collapse was coming. And of course, that's why they had to be g up by the more fanatical members of the regime uh, to keep fighting. It's why uh, summary executions took place on streets to make sure people fought. But I think that the second part of your question is about what the Nazi leadership were doing. There's no doubt that many of them were feathering their nests and looking as to what was going to happen after the collapse. Uh, When I was researching Hunting Evil, the book about Nazi war criminals escaping, um, you know, one of the things is not just look for the man, but look for the money. Where was the money going? And there was a huge flight of capital before there was a huge flight of humanity. And even before the war in Europe ended, there were millions and millions of dollars making their way to Spain, which of course was neutral, uh, but had a fascist regime under Franco. And there was a big holding company called Sofindus, and that was receiving millions and millions of dollars, uh, probably billions in today's uh, uh, values, of Nazi capital, essentially. These were Nazis feathering their nests. Um, and of course, there was another place where that money was going, and that was, uh, under the streets of Zurich, Switzerland, uh, where it was going to discretionary, uh, Swiss bankers. But so there's no doubt that the Nazi leadership, uh, was preparing for, uh, the end of the war and the end of the war, which they knew they would lose.
0: I think that's a, an interesting approach is, um, you know, follow, follow the money. Who was responsible? What individuals were responsible for sort of moving this money around and, What were their hopes after Berlin had fallen, Germany had um, been lost to the Allies? Where were they hoping to go?
1: There was no doubt an enormous number of Nazis were moving money around. I mean, it just depends on sort of what level of wealth they had access to. I think we can be pretty certain that Martin Bormann was moving money around. Uh, We can also be certain that um, many senior SS generals were moving money around. And anybody who uh, had any wealth at all, were going to smuggle it out of Nazi Germany. And of course, the other thing is uh, is that none of this is documented. Uh, you know, there, there are reports of things like Sofindus getting vast amounts of money, but of course, uh, you know, Nazis weren't going around saying, "I transfer X million dollars to Spain." We know it happened because we know that these companies suddenly received vast, mysterious <laughs> lump sums, and there was only one place that could have come from. Um, and, and indeed, many you know Nazis after the war did have wealth. As to your second question, uh, you know, what did they want to do with it, or where, where did they want to go? They wanted to go to countries which were obviously going to be politically sensitive, uh, politically sympathetic to them. So South America. But obviously, what people also forget is that the Middle East was a very popular kind of retirement destination for Nazis as well, because many of those uh, Arab states uh, had a lot of natural sympathy towards Nazism.
0: How fascinating. Um, now, that's that's another intriguing point you brought up. And I know, of course, there's a lot of, dare I say, a historical, you know, television programs that have sort of covered the whole hunting Hitler and, and hunting the Nazis who who fled to South America. But from a real historical perspective, those Nazis who did escape to Argentina in, in South America, can you talk a little bit about that? What we know about certain Nazis who uh, lived for periods of time after the war?
1: Well, you're absolutely right to uh, uh, talk about uh, Hunting Hitler, that uh, TV series, in denigratory terms. It's a very, very problematic thing at the moment um, for many Second World War historians is the uh, plethora of rumour and junk history that's propagated by programmes like that. Um, for listeners who, who aren't aware of Hunting Hitler, Hunting Hitler is a it's three television series produced by the History Channel. Which looks at how Hitler escaped, uh, which I say in inverted commas and quote marks, because Hitler, uh, we know, convincingly did die in the bunker at the end of the war, and to suggest otherwise really is kind of the worst kind of false history. And I should make a declaration: I was asked to be on that program, but in the end, uh, I, I only agreed to be on it if I was clearly the voice of <laughs> cynicism about this theory, which as anybody can tell that I am. But I, I wasn't entirely satisfied that I'd be presented in such a way, so it kind of went. But yes, there were numerous Nazis who did escape, didn't kill themselves, and they largely travelled through a very sort of loose, informal network of Nazis in neighbouring towns. Is this a good time to talk about the Odessa? I suspect it is, isn't it?
0: Yes, certainly.
1: Well, let's talk about the Odessa, because the Odessa um, is an organisation which I argue is actually mythological and is not actually true. Odessa stands uh, for the German words of the organization of former members of the SS, O-D-E-S-S-A. And you only have to think about that for about a nanosecond to realize what nonsense it is. Because if you are a secret organization of former members of the SS, are you really going to call yourself the organization of former members of the SS? I would suggest not. So that's one massive kind of red flag that lets you know that this is probably not true. Also, The idea that there was a formalised network put into place before the war's end, which would sort of operate almost seamlessly and secretly throughout the world, is just fanciful. And it really is the stuff of fiction. And of course, it came to prominence because Frederick Forsyth, well-known British thriller writer, wrote a very good thriller, which turned into a film with John Voight called The Odessa File, which um, postulates that this organisation existed. And I interviewed Frederick Forsyth for my book, Hunting Evil. Um, and I did put to him, look, you know, there was no such thing as Odessa. This was simply a kind of journalistic construct. You know, it made good copy. And he basically admitted that actually there were just rather loose networks of former Nazis. So, you know, if I'm trying to help you trying to escape Noah, you know, we, we, we don't have to sort of form a society. I would just say, well, you seem like a good guy. I'll give you a hand. And then someone in the next village or next town I know will help you. And it's it organized more on those sort of ad hoc lines. So I think that the whole idea of the Odessa, I really, really would uh, strongly encourage listeners to get away from that idea. It doesn't make the flight of Nazis after the war any less fascinating, any less mysterious, uh, you uh know, and any more thriller-like, but there just wasn't this formal apparatus. But as to the Nazis who did escape, and of course there, there, were, there were many who escaped, and of course they managed to escape because the logistical challenge in hunting down so many Nazis at the end of the war uh, was all but impossible. And one British War Crimes Investigation Unit member said, we were completely unprepared for the sheer flood of criminality uh, after the war. And the British War Crimes and American War Crimes uh, Wanted lists are, are a book as thick as about three Bibles. Um, You know, it really is a big document. I've got a facsimile of it, and it takes up about half a shelf. And you think, you know, if one manhunt takes weeks or months, and you've got to multiply that by a 100,000, you know, those teams, if they still existed, would still be going today. So that is uh, one of the reasons why so many Nazis escaped. Another reason why they escaped was because the Allies, because they couldn't cope with this sheer volume of criminality, after about three or four years, they just gave up. It was impossible, and everybody felt that actually we should just get on and rebuild Europe rather than just keep the war going by constantly hunting after criminals. So, And another reason was that some of them were used uh, for what they knew about the Soviets, and the Soviets used Nazis to uh, find out stuff about the Allies. So again, there were intelligence reasons for uh, employing former Nazis. It's not pretty, it's not moralistic, but the intelligence game is a dirty game. Uh, I think much is overplayed of that. I think many people feel that this was kind of, uh, involved hundreds, if not thousands of Nazis. You know, I really don't think it comes to that number of people. And also some of the Nazis got away because they were clever, resourceful, intelligent, well-funded individuals, um, who were able to, um, use this informal network, which did involve some members of the Catholic Church, but not the Catholic Church as an institution. And they, they used uh, the chaos at the end of the war to spirit themselves away.
0: How fascinating. Now, you know, in terms of the, the quest to bring these, these Nazis to justice, you, you touched on that a little bit. But what organizations or, or what you know, nationalities really sort of spearheaded this, um, this quest to bring them to justice?
1: Well, when you say there's a spearhead, it makes it sound like there might be this kind of incredibly sharp, dynamic, powerful institution or series of institutions that were hunting Nazis. And there just really weren't. Um, there were American war crimes investigation teams attached to the U.S. Army. Um, there were British uh, war crime investigations teams attached to the British Army and the British Air Force. Um, there were Soviet ones, but I've got to be honest, the people working for those teams weren't necessarily the most able uh uh officers. Many officers who wanted to be in the army didn't want to be in a war crimes team. It, it wasn't seen as a kind of uh, prestigious post to be in. Uh They employed a lot of former policemen or acting policemen and detectives. But, you know, many of those guys didn't speak the language. So, you know, you're doing a manhunt in a country in which you don't speak the language. It's going to be difficult. Um, you're going to have to rely on local interpreters. you are going to and some of whom may not be entirely sympathetic to what you're doing um There were some very cold winters after the war, which made getting around Germany very, very difficult. Fuel was low to heat offices, and the roads were appalling so you know a, a journey that you and I uh might confidently hope to make in a couple of hours uh in our cars is the type of thing that would have taken you know a British war crimes or American war crimes investigator probably a day or two. That's if his car, you know, didn't break down on the way because, you know, of course, 1940s automobiles were not reliable contraptions by any stretch of the imagination. So you have those two teams, you have basically allied, official, military teams, people running around in uniforms, but they were ill-funded, they weren't well-resourced, and they didn't attract uh, the most dynamic calibre of recruit. I'm not saying that all those on these teams were... Uh, second rate, not by any stretch of the imagination. Indeed, I've interviewed some of the surviving members, and they were they were sharp and intelligent men. But that was a criticism made at the time, that these weren't necessarily the, the cream of the armed forces. So that was the spearhead. And it wasn't that effective a spearhead, because as I mentioned, the sheer volume of criminality. And another thing that um, some people might enjoy is actually a very early uh, Hollerith computer, a kind of IBM computer was set up, in a room in Paris, uh, and this was a vast room. And and it, the computer, which worked on punch cards, was so big, uh, and this was intended to, uh, to sort of kind of sort out all the sort of war criminal information that came in, that when they turned on the computer, the room got so hot that the computer overheated. Uh, and no one could be in the room at the same time because it got too hot for them as well. And, uh, of course, this thing probably had about, you know, a nano percent of what you'd have on your smartphone today. So it was an incredibly ungainly thing, and of course, experimenting with technology in in in, in the heart of one of the largest series of man hunts ever known to man uh, is probably not the most wise idea. So, in terms of actual Nazi hunting, um, that is something that only really starts happening, uh, maybe many decades later.
0: My last question, sort of on on this area of. Hunting the Nazi war criminals before we backtrack a little bit and talk about the fall of the Third Reich. Most of the senior Nazi leadership were, you know, dead or certainly indisposed at this time, but what influential Nazi leaders, Nazi individuals still were alive and well and proceeded to escape.
1: Well, we just have to sort of work our way through uh, the sort of those senior figures who were, uh, 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 you know, in the bunker or had seen Hitler around that time. Uh, we now know that Martin Bormann, who was the Reichs Chancellor, I mean, sorry, was the head of chancellery effectively, basically sort of Hitler's sort of almost right hand man. We now know he died. Himmler escaped but was captured. Um, I think one of the most interesting, uh, figures who did escape and surface later was Goebbels' replacement as their secretary of state for propaganda, a man called Vernon Naumann, who's a largely neglected figure, but actually in the early fifties, uh, was arrested by the British for fomenting, uh, an, an attempted Nazi takeover of a German political party. That's another story, but he's another interesting figure who was on the run and we're not entirely sure where he hid. <laughs> Um Who else do we have? Another mysterious figure was the head of the Gestapo, a man called Heinrich Muller. No one entirely knows what happened to him. I'm willing to entertain all forms of theories about Gestapo Muller, as he's known. He's the one Nazi for whom I'm happy to listen to many explanations. Uh, Martin Bormann, we know to have died. Uh, Gestapo Muller, we don't know. He must be dead by now, but at the time, uh, no idea. Um, I'm just trying to run through some other Nazis. Uh, well, of course, Dernitz, of course, that uh, was the head of government, head of state briefly. But we don't have, um, incredibly senior Nazis, uh, managing to hightail it out of the Third Reich and get away with it. Um, you know, the Nazis who, who, who we, you know, now come to think of in relation to Nazi hunting, like Adolf Eichmann, Joseph Mengele, these sort of figures, these kind of household names, if you like, uh, these aren't senior Nazis by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, uh, Mengele was, was just a middle ranking SS officer. Adolf Eichmann was a lieutenant colonel in the SS, you know, a high-ish rank, but nowhere near the kind of creme de la creme, if you can use such a phrase of the Nazi regime. So there are not really many senior Nazis on the run.
0: Now, sort of backtracking a little bit and talking about the fall of uh, Berlin and the Allied takeover of, of Germany itself that really sort of triggered this escape of Nazi war criminals. Once Berlin had fallen and the Allies had taken Germany, sort of what happened next?
1: It is well known that the Red Army, the Soviet Army, committed uh, rape on a vast scale in Berlin. Um, this is an incredibly controversial topic because uh, many Russians continue to deny it, uh, as well they might. And the historian Anthony Beaver, I'm sure, is known to all your listeners uh, wrote a book about the, the fall of Berlin, um, and I think he's almost still persona non grata in Russia for having uh, written about this. He wasn't the first historian to write about it, but he was clearly probably the most high-profile historian to write about it. What happens to Berlin, um, as many will know, is that it gets carved up amongst the four big Allied powers, uh, the UK, France, the United States, uh, and the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union have the eastern half of Berlin, and the other three allied nations have a kind of third each. Um, no, I think, you know, it is kept under control. You know, there, there isn't a kind of sort of, uh, after the, the division, there isn't a kind of rape and pillage. It's clearly a place that needs rebuilding. Um, you know, it's, it's completely still shattered by bombing and the Soviet onslaught. And in fact, the other day I was watching that fantastic, uh, film, uh, Funeral in Berlin with uh, Michael Caine uh, based on uh, – is it based on a Len Dayton book? Yes, I think it is. Anyway, but that is set in the early 60s, and and, and Berlin is still a complete mess around the time of that film being made, uh, you know, rubble everywhere, um, you know, and that was a good 15 years after the war. So I think that really the defining feature of Berlin is, is a city, you know, completely on its knees, if not lower, and just trying to rebuild. And I think that because you have enormous military presence there, um, and not just Soviet army, red army presence, but allied army presence, I think it's, it's, it's a relatively safe place.
0: Well, I'll tell you, guy, I was, um, quite taken with the uh, documentary series that is actually available on Netflix that you were featured in. I believe it's Hitler's Circle of Evil. Is that, is that correct?
1: Oh, yes. Yes. It's a superb documentary series. I would say that. I know, but yes, it's, it's a big 10 part series. Yeah.
0: Yes. Well, I highly recommend that to all listening, but. You know, we talked a little bit about the Nazi leadership in in the final days of the Reich, but when Hitler was still alive, and this is something that is fascinatingly presented in that documentary series, uh, before Hitler actually committed suicide, and it was totally clear that the end was near, that Germany and the Third Reich were doomed, what did the senior Nazi officials attempt to do? I mean, did they have any hope of persuading Hitler for those who aren't familiar with this era of history? Or were they just basically taking their, their money and trying to escape the country?
1: I think the different senior Nazi officials behaved in different ways. Uh, famously, um, Albert Speer, um, who's sort of known shorthand as Hitler's architect, who was also the armaments minister, um, claimed to have looked at ways of installing you know, poison gas into the bunker to kill off Hitler. Um, many believe that not to be true. You know, Himmler was there trying to uh, uh, be the kind of the, the, the power player that he so desperately wanted to be uh, between the Allies and the Nazi leadership. And indeed, of course, Hitler went absolutely apoplectic when he found out that Himmler was actually trying to sue peace, sue for peace with the Allies. Um, Goering, meanwhile, refused to come to the bunker, but he, he was sort of installed in one of his many homes and trying to assert himself as Hitler's replacement. Um, again, Hitler went absolutely bananas when he heard this. So you have a kind of disintegration of the senior leadership with, with all these very senior figures like Himmler and Goering, all jockeying for position, all thinking, actually, I, I can inherit the crown here. A real testament to their vanity, of course, is that it's the crown to uh, an empire that no longer exists. I mean, you know, by you know May 1945, uh, the the war is over. Uh, you know, the Third Reich is crushed, but there's still these men ludicrously trying to sort of you know vie for the leadership. It, it's vanity, and it shows what enormous vanity was there, and how some of these senior figures probably did not fully grasp reality. Saying that others were were feathering their nests. they were sending money abroad. Um, and, and they were making plans to escape. Some of them were going to be loyal and stay to Hitler to the very end. Famously, Joseph Goebbels, of course, pledged his loyalty to his leader, his Fuhrer. Um, and as did his wife, who some listeners might be aware, uh, actually, you know, took part in the murder of six of her children, uh, believing that a world without Nazism was not a world worth living in. Um, so it, it is truly a horrific situation. And of course, um, it's not just successfully captured in, in 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 that marvelous Netflix documentary, but also um, I'm sure many uh, listeners would have watched Downfall, that fantastic movie, uh, which really does capture uh, the flavor of the man mm. at the end of uh, at the end of the war in the bunker. Yes,
0: yeah, certainly, and that is uh, indeed one of my favorite Second World War movies as well. Well, Guy Walters, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show today. It's really been an honor to have you. I've uh, admired your work. For some time, and I've certainly learned a great deal from our conversation today.
1: Well, thank you very much indeed. That flew past for me. I hope it flies past for everybody else.
0: Thank you all so much for listening today to Stories of the Second World War. Please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting platform and consider leaving a positive rating and review. You can also find the podcast at storiesofthesecondworldwar.com with more information about the show. Thanks so much for listening. Join us here again next week.